Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the Democratic Convention. And then for the rest of the hour, we're joined by Pastor Brian Zahn. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are so dang glad you are here. Welcome to the show. we got a lot of wonderful things planned for you today, uh, not the least of which is Pastor Brian Zahn, who's coming up next. If you've never read or listened to him, I can't encourage you enough to go do that. But we're really excited to have a conversation with him, most specifically about his recent book, Postcards from Babylon. It's wonderful. But uh, a couple of quick things to get out of the way. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's not only where we post articles. I posted one earlier today about see-through bathrooms in Japan. Uh, that. That one's weird. You can go find that there. You can also, if you want to, send us messages if you have Thoughts about previous shows or ideas for future shows. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk and wherever it is you get your podcasts. I am really grateful. If you uh, subscribe, rate, and review, it takes just a couple of seconds. All of that does help us out a whole heap of a lot. And uh, I don't want to just dive right into the news. That feels rude. So first, I'm just going to ask you, Brian, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day outside. And uh, yeah, it's a good day. And I'm uh, tonight... Uh, my daughter, for the first time, is playing organized softball here in the fall, and I'm going to be one of her coaches. And I've never coached softball, so this should be fun tonight. She, I'm kind she of excited. excited about that or mortified? Uh, she's super excited. She begged me to help coach. I think it's a little bit of a security blanket, but all you know, lots of friends on the team, and it's going to be fun. Just the, any any ability for them to play organized anything right now outside yeah. with friends were taken. So if first practice tonight I'll I'll report back tomorrow but getting uh dipping my toe into uh into 6th grade girls softball tonight. I'm sure you already know this but that's that's kind of a gift that she actually wants you to be around, right? Yeah. Like that's not every dad has has that experience. We're like, "Dad, please come be a part of this other thing that I'm doing with my friends." That's a pretty big deal, right? It is. And I, I love it. And my wife and I, a long time ago, uh, kind of decided that we would coach as as often as we could up until the age when, like, they needed better coaches than us. And so, you know, <laughs> we were always the park. We would always team coach, to, you know, their park district soccer teams or basketball teams. And that's always the thing, right? Like, in the moment, it can be annoying sometimes. Like, oh, I got to go to practice. But then you're like, you know, what am I going to remember when they're out of the house one day? I'm going to remember coaching second grade basketball or that kind of stuff. And so right. I love it. I'm super excited to do it. And uh, yeah, I feel a little bit uh, out of my realm of what I know. But, you know, I figure I can fake it. Softball, sixth grade. I think we can do it. We we believe in you, Brian Fromm. And uh, thank I you know that I speak for everyone when I say we would love some video footage of your coaching <laughs> so that we can all uh, enjoy assessing that yes. together. Uh, I look forward to doing that next week. Also, OK, so we got to talk about it. I don't know how much I have to say about it, but uh, there was a convention yesterday, the Democratic National Convention. And uh, I don't know if you caught any of it live, Brian, or if you followed up the day after, but uh, I'd love to know generally thoughts, takeaways, feelings. Uh, so I did not watch any of it live. It's just weird that everything's virtual right now. And yeah. so you almost forget that it's going on. And so I did see it on Twitter. I was like, oh, I might go over uh, being virtual and Zoom or whatever they were on. <clears throat> it, some of it was weird, right? Like uh, some of the speakers you felt down were literally looking down on you, <laughs> like the way they had their cameras or right. the John Kasich one with like standing at like a crossroads was a little odd. Um, but you know, I do feel like there was effectiveness to it. Michelle Obama is, I think, regardless, I know we have some people who probably love her, some people who probably disagree with her politics wholeheartedly. 
you got to hand it to the fact that she's a great speaker. And uh, I thought the parts of her speech that I saw were compelling. And uh, the takeaway, like when she said when she used President Trump's line of it is what it is like, that's compelling uh, just as a speaker. So I thought it was weird. But the Republican one's going to be weird, too, being virtual. They're making the best of it. And uh, yeah, I thought it was it's, it's interesting. It's the world we live in right now. Uh, I'd love to know a little bit later what you thought of the it, it is what it is comment, because I yeah again, I saw social media blowing up and I'm really on both sides of the coin. There are other parts of her speech that I, I did appreciate. She said, let me tell you uh, once again, this job is hard. It requires clear headed judgment, a mastery of complex and competing issues, a devotion to facts and history, a moral compass and an ability to listen. I, I appreciated just in general recognizing like hey, this this is just a hard job, no matter how you slice it. You know, I think sometimes, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but don't you sometimes feel like we can forget that from the comfort of our computer screens? It's kind of like being oh, yeah. an, like an armchair Absolutely. coach. You're like, oh, why would he pass when he should have ran? Like, it's really easy to say with a bag of Frito Lays in your hands, man. Why, why don't you uh, ratchet that back a little bit? Like, I, exactly. I, I did appreciate that that perspective. Yeah, I think so too. Just and she had firsthand knowledge of it, right? Living in the White House and. Uh, there's an interesting subplot going into tonight that we don't have time to get into. Maybe someday uh, some new pictures uh, came out of that kind of linked Bill Clinton with some of the Epstein accusers. Nothing sexual. It was a but it's another picture on the day he's speaking at the convention. And so there's a, my Twitter is kind of going crazy right now. of People going like, how has he not been canceled? And then other people like he's an ex-president, like he should speak. And just a very interesting backdrop to President Clinton's speech tonight. Yeah, and there's a, a couple of other articles that we'll put up on the Facebook page. And if you engage with it, if you leave comments, maybe we'll include it in a future show. One's out of religion news that says Democrats tap array of faith leaders to speak at convention. And the other yeah. one is a completely different perspective, but it says Joe Biden's Catholic politics are complicated, but deeply American. Both of those were like, I thought, pretty interesting perspectives because we've heard a number of people say, we well, can't be a Democrat and a Christian. I've heard people just outright say, that's not possible. And uh, there seems to be a number of people, smart, intelligent, committed to their faith, writing about the complicated faith components of both right and the left. And I'd love to know, like, how are you grappling with all that? Yeah, it's it is interesting. I read that article that you put up there about Biden, that he is a deeply committed Catholic. But yet the Catholic Church has said some very strong things about specifically his stance on abortion and right. some other things. So, like, I think you use the correct word complicated. Right. Uh, and I think it's a great segue into our next guest because he has written a book that really gets at that. Brian Zond. And I think it's fascinating because anyone who says the right has the faith, the left does it or vice versa. You're, you're missing the nuance and the complicated nature of all this. And, and I think with something we have to wrestle with as the election gets closer. Well, sir, that is a perfect tease. Coming up next, Pastor Brian Zond, author of a number of books, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, and more recently, Postcards from Babylon, The Church in American Exile. That's coming up next for the rest of the hour here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we are absolutely thrilled to have for the rest of the hour, Pastor Brian Zond, welcome to the show, sir. Oh, it's good to be with you. So good to have you. Would you just take just a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience? Mm, well, I'm getting so old that there's a lot to tell, but I'll try to be speedy <laughs> here. Uh, I'm, I'm an aging Jesus freak. That's what I am. <laughs> I, I came to faith in Jesus Christ suddenly in my teen years when I 
I went from being the high school Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak overnight. That created no small stir among my friends. And by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry that was, uh, this was in the Jesus movement time. It Mm. was a coffee house called the Catacombs that by the time I was 22, we just started meeting on Sunday and said, we're a church. (laughs) None of which I actually believe is is a good idea, but it's what happened. Uh, So I've been I'm 61 now, and I have pastored this church, this Word of Life church, for now 39 years. Wow. Uh, But actually, you know, it has roots that go back farther. So I tell people, look, I've been doing the work of a pastor longer than I've been an adult. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I don't recommend that, but that's that's what happened. And uh, so I've really done one thing. My bio is pretty simple. Pastor of Word of Life Church, St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, over the last 10 years, I've written eight or nine books. I say eight or nine. I mean, I've written eight, but I'm about done with the ninth. Nice. And nice. Uh, so so uh, I've written books, and I used to travel and speak a lot. Haven't done any of that since March. And my day job is I pastor Word of Life Church so hmm. in St. Joseph, Missouri. That's where I am, Love just it. north of Kansas City, the home of the world champion Kansas City Chiefs. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to go there. I had to get it. We understand. I had to get it. Brian, uh, besides it being a real pleasure to have another Brian on the show, I'm glad for that. Uh, mm-hmm. could you, How do you spell I, it, though? Uh, with an I. The only Rock way on. to spell it. The only way to spell it. Uh, I'm curious. I'd love to hear more of your story about coming to Jesus. You said it was pretty dramatic and kind of overnight. I'd love to just hear uh, a little bit more of that story. Well, I grew up. I mean, it wasn't like I was unaware of Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, I grew up in a good home and a family that went to the local Baptist church and all that. And I didn't I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. It was just there. It was just kind of and Jesus was on the periphery of my life. Hmm. He occupied roughly the same kind of spaces, maybe like George Washington or something, (laughs) you know, just some sort of historical figure that's like important. Uh, and I went to a fellowship of Christian athletes sponsored event at the local university, November 9th, 1974. And the speaker was David Wilkerson. I don't know if anybody knows who that guy Mm -hmm. is. This is, you know, David Wilkerson of the, well, originally of the cross and switchblade fame and Mm -hmm. and his work with gangs in New York. And uh, I remember they had a Christian band playing that I thought was super lame. <laughs> and I felt like, man, that, that, is not, that does not even rock. That does not rock at all. And uh, I wasn't even really interested. I don't know why I was there. I got roped into it. You know, some other friends got me to go or something. I don't remember exactly. All I knew, all I know is that at the very end, there was this, you know, invitation given. And suddenly I just knew that I needed to do this, that I needed to say yes to Jesus. And it was suddenly very dramatic. And um, it's hard to describe, but I knew that I had encountered the living Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went out with my friends afterwards and we went and, you know, we were just hanging out, went to get something to eat. And I was I was uncharacteristically quiet. And I just thought, wow, something just really happened to me. And. I got home about midnight. This will sound a little, you know, mystical, but I don't know how else to tell it. You asked the question. So <laughs> um, I walked into my bedroom and it was as if, it's hard to describe, but it's as if the room was suddenly immersed in light. It was just wow. not like coming from one place, but it was like, it was like the room was filled with light from floor to ceiling. 
Hmm. And I, I fell to my knees and I lifted my hands and I worshiped Jesus. I'd never seen that done. I, I, you know, I could imagine that maybe people did that, but I'd never seen it done. Hmm. And uh, it was it was quite dramatic. I don't think at all that that this needs to be typical, that if people come to Jesus very gently or slowly or they can't even, you know, remember a time when they weren't, you know, drawn to Jesus. I don't think that's illegitimate at all. But that's my story. That's how it mm-hmm. happened. And uh, I was very quickly, you know, leading Bible studies at school. And leading a Bible study meant that I could just read a chapter of the Bible that I'd never read before, which was all of it the night before, and then teach it to other kids. <laughs> so that's how, and, and that that led to the catacombs and that led to Word of Life Church. So really, I've just kind of done one thing all of my life. Yeah. That's remarkable. You, you have a number of books that uh, have been incredibly helpful for me. You're also a pretty prolific blogger. And I don't know if this is actually a thing, but I would I would categorize you as like a Twitter provocateur. I think that's safe to say. As well. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to say that that I think real life BZ is is it probably four times less snarky than <laughs> Twitter BZ. BZ. I, there's a little bit of a persona going on there. Okay, mm-hmm. so. Because it's, I guess it's Twitter. I don't know. Uh, it does kind of bring it out in all of us. I don't think. And, and, don't and think you know, sometimes, sometimes the Holy Spirit convicts me and other times my wife convicts me. But yeah, I try to keep that. But yeah, I am something of a provocateur, I, I would say. And I would say that's fairly intentional. Well, and I, like, and I appreciate it a lot because I feel like the things that you at least expose or are shedding light on, or at the very least, the questions you raise are, are so necessary. And I think of like, your book, Sinners in the Hand of a Loving God and Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, was a, a big book for me and the work that I was doing. I, I'd love to know just briefly a little bit about Postcards from Babylon, and then later in the hour we'll kind of unpack a little bit more. But what, what's kind of the general like vision and hope for that book? Uh, well, I think it's the subtitle, The Church in American Exile. Mm. Uh, mm. Just to really throw it out there all at once, just to do- jump in the deep end, I think – American evangelicals desperately need to view America as a kind of biblical Babylon, not as a kind of biblical Israel. Mm. And once you make that theological move, it changes everything. Maybe in the next you know, segment we can talk more about it. But we have to understand America as an empire. I'm not saying that uh, to be pejorative. I'm just being analytical about it. Hmm. That America is many things, but it's also an empire. And as an empire, um, there's a lot the Bible says about that. So what do I mean by empire? I mean uh, empires are rich, powerful nations that believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history according to their agenda. Hmm. Um, God loves nations with their culture, language, diversity, ethnicity, all of that. But throughout Scripture, quite literally, from Genesis to Revelation, there is an anti-imperial message going over and over and over. Because what empires claim for themselves, a right to rule nations, manifest destiny to shape history according to their agenda, is the very thing that God has promised to his son. So empires become a rival to the sovereignty of God, and they become a challenge for the allegiance of Christians. And so that's what Postcards from Babylon is about. That's not, that's not like a nice, soft, easy introduction to it. That's telling you what I'm up to. Well, that's what we call in the biz a perfect teaser. I cannot wait to ask more 
about that book coming up next with Brian Zahn, founding and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in Missouri. Also, the author of Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God and more recently, Postcards from Babylon. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We have on the show one of my favorite authors and speakers and thinkers, Pastor Brian Zahn. He's the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church and the author of a new book called Postcards from Babylon. He gave us a bit of a a teaser there on what kind of the general arc of the book is. And uh, there's a a quote from it that I want to read briefly and then sort of get your response to. You said, we should always remember that the ends never justify the means. Rather, the means are the ends in the process of becoming. If the Mm -hmm. means are death-dealing, then the ends aren't going to be life-affirming. Could you talk a little bit more about that statement? Yeah, I don't remember exactly where that is in the book, but I imagine that it's somewhere in the context of how we understand violence. Hmm. Um, Americans are deeply seduced by the myth of redemptive violence. Maybe the iconic image would be, uh, you know, the cowboy with his six shooter who writes all wrongs by, you know, taking out the bad guy with his trusty iron. Hmm. Uh, and that is deeply embedded in how we think as Christians, and it creeps into the church. And so we believe that we can go about achieving good through the means of violence. That is, to put it really crudely, uh, how do we deal with evil? Well, we kill the bad guys. Hmm. Um, and so we think, yeah, the end is justified by the means. That's, that's, the, that's the devil's bargain that's lurking in there. Uh, but in fact, the end, the means, how we go about it is the, is, is the end in the process of becoming. Hmm. And it's interesting that when I talk about the idea that violence is not acceptable as a way to bring about the purposes of God on earth, uh, a lot of people, that's massively unpopular among right. a lot of American evangelical Christians, and yet it was entirely non-controversial for about the first 300 years of the church. Mm. So when people say, you know, Brian has a, a progressive vision or a progressive message, or he's just he's just a full-on liberal, he doesn't even believe that we should wage war. And I said, well, no, that's actually the conservative position. Mm. This is what the church held to begin with. And... Mm. Uh, that's quite clear. That's not really a matter of debate. Uh, the scholarship is will solidly tell you that. And I mean, you can read the church fathers for yourself. Uh, the church just saw the waging of wars incompatible with following Christ. Hmm. Soldiers, if they were already soldiers and then came to faith in Christ, they could remain in the Roman army because the Roman army was pervasive and they did a lot of things. They, they were basically the police force. They were also the engineering force and the construction force for roads. And so they didn't say you had to leave the military, but you did have to take a vow that you would not kill even in combat. Mm-hmm. And this was just a matter of course. It's interesting. The early church debated so many things, you know, the nature of Christology and, and what books are to be admitted into the Bible and how we understand the Trinity. And there were all kinds of fierce debates. But if the question was, but should Christians ever kill? Heck no. I mean, that was, that was, they all agreed on that. Wow. And um, what happened, though, 
was uh, the church got seduced into a, I would describe it as a chaplaincy role with the empire. What happened was, is in the year 312, there is this civil war going on. There's, there, there's a vacancy in, you know, for Caesar, and there's a couple of generals that are fighting for it. And as the legend goes, and I think it's no more than a legend, a hagiographic legend, hmm. uh, this, this one general, Constantine, sees a vision of a cross in the sky with the words, in this sign you shall conquer. Of course, conquer is a euphemism for kill. Mm-hmm. And so in the sign of the cross, you shall kill. And he wins the battle of the Milvian Bridge. He becomes uh, emperor. He makes Christianity the favored religion. In short order, it becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire. Um, the church goes along with this. And I, and I don't really want to condemn the fourth century church for doing that. I think it was a mistake. I think history shows that it was a mistake. I also think it was, all, it was quite nearly an inevitable mistake. Hmm. That I can't imagine, let's say, a Christian in Milan hearing in the early decades of the of the fourth century that the emperor apparently is now some kind of Christian and this Christian saying, well, we're not going to put up with that. (laughs) And uh, no, they, they, they came along, but it created a problem because the seminal confession of the early church was always Jesus is Lord. Now, you have to understand that at that time, that would sound much different than it sounds today. Today, it is some sort of just general uh, religious affirmation. Mm-hmm. Uh, to say that, you understand that the term Lord was a political term. Right. It was an imperial title granted by the Roman Senate to the emperor. And so to say that Jesus is Lord is at least by implication to say that Caesar is not. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was, uh, now there's this confusion. Well, Caesar's kind of Lord, but we can't get rid of Jesus. So, so okay, Jesus is going to be Lord of the heavens. Caesar can be Lord of the earth. What happens is Jesus gets demoted to the secretary of afterlife affairs. His job is to get us into heaven when we die, mm. and we'll let Caesar run the world. Mm. Um, but, but Caesar is going to do it not by the cross not by co-suffering love, not by laying down his life for his neighbor, but by killing his enemies. Right. And, and so the church comes along and endorses that, and it puts us on the trajectory of Christendom, which reaches its apex in the two world wars in Europe in the 20th century, where millions and millions of baptized Christians killed other millions and millions of baptized Christians in the name of their national allegiance. Hmm, right. And then we ought to think, hmm, something's gone wrong here. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. so if you again, people always want to just drag me into like, it's 1940, and what are we going to do about Hitler? Right. I said, well, right. we can have that conversation, but you understand the primary cause of World War II is World War I. I mean, you don't get the sequel without having the first one. <laughs> and you, you ask people, what was World War I about? And not one in a hundred can tell you yeah. what it was about. It was about rabid nationalism that got out of control because mechanized warfare had arrived too quickly and we didn't understand how to turn it off. Hmm. And so it leads to the slaughter of millions of people, the vast majority of whom called themselves Christians and were baptized. And so I think we have to say, my goodness, something has gone wrong. And so that's all trying to sum up uh, the end is not justified by the means, but the means are the end in the process of becoming. That's good. And Brian, that, that is fascinating. I'm curious, 
as uh, in the book, as you start to understand uh, this link to Babylon, how does that affect, say, political engagement or even patriotism? What do you how do you answer that for people? Well, uh, I, I try to be passionately ambivalent about partisanship <laughs> uh, because my allegiance right now, everybody wants to plot everyone else on either a left, right donkey elephant grid. And I just resist that. Mm. Uh, I really am sincere when I say I can sum up my politics in three words. Jesus is Lord. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's not me being coy or cute. That's me trying to be succinct in what I actually believe. Um, Maybe in the next section, we can talk a little bit about what we mean by Babylon and what Babylon represents in both the Old and New Testaments and how it's important that Christians understand that we are living in a kind of Babylon and we have to learn to live as exiles. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I, I tend to vote these days toward who I think will do the least damage. Mm. I don't really carry a lot of hope that, that, that some political apparatus is going to be able to actually bring the kingdom of Christ. Uh, I, I'm quite convinced that neither major political party in America is capable of doing that. So how I vote today is informed most by who is going to do the least damage. That's how mm-hmm. I think about it. Well, Reverend Zahn, you are two for two with these radio teasers. Coming up next <laughs> with Brian Zahn, founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church, but also author of Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God and Postcards from Babylon. Coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit more about what do you mean by Babylon I'm going to ask you about the cross, and maybe we'll even sneak in some Bob Dylan. That's all coming up yeah, there you go. here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. They sat together in the park As the evening sky grew dark She looked at him and he felt a spark Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We've been joined all hour Pastor Brian Zahn, he's the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church and also the author of a number of wonderful books, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Postcards from Babylon. I do want to say out loud to you before we run out of time, I'm so grateful in particular for Beauty Will Save the World because I I started a a ministry, an organization a couple years ago called Beauty in the Common, and that book was actually incredibly instrumental for me. So just to say it out loud, thank you for your writing and your blogging and your preaching. It's been That's super very kind of you. Thank you. I just heard from uh, someone did a interview. Or they they wanted. I just heard right before I came on with you that there's a, a radio station in somewhere in Ireland that wants to have me on to discuss beauty will save the world. Oh, okay. Wow. Right on. That's awesome. So Brian, as we talk about your book, Postcards from Babylon, I guess. Kind of more foundationally, can you even describe for our people uh, Babylon and that background and how maybe right. it links to our country now? So, you know, in the in the story of Israel, uh, you have a people chosen by God to be unique, to uh, to be part of God's salvific efforts in the in the earth. Uh, but in their long history, their long story, there comes this calamitous moment. When in 587, Jerusalem is destroyed and the people are carried away into exile. Mm. And so now they have the challenge of remaining faithful to the living God, but they have to live as exiles. And so this is what the book of Daniel is about. So they're having to try to navigate this narrow uh, passage of, on the one hand, 
you have to make your living in Babylon. You, you, you know, they're told that by the prophet Jeremiah, seek the welfare of this city. Right. And, and so they're employed even by the, even by the, by Nebuchadnezzar and by the royal court. And yet there's a line they can't cross. And so they might have to brave lion's dens or fiery furnaces. So this is what this book is about, is about how do the people of God maintain fidelity to the living God while living in a broader pagan culture? Mm-hmm. Now, and, and I think people understand that story. Babylon is the, is the quintessential iconic image of empire within, uh, within the scriptures. Now you get into the New Testament, and at the beginning of the first epistle of, uh, first epistle of Peter, you have Peter saying, he, he's writing to, he calls them the exiles. Hmm. And, and he describes the provinces in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Uh, they're not exiles in the sense that they haven't always lived there or they were displaced to there, like the Jewish exiles to Nebuchadnezzar or to uh, Babylon. Rather, by virtue of their baptism, hmm. They have they, they these are citizens of the Roman Empire, at least many of them would be others might be slaves, but they're inhabitants, let's say that of the Roman Empire, and this is what they've known all their life. but now, with their confession that Jesus is Lord, they have been baptized, and suddenly they're exiles in the land of their birth, mm. and they have to learn how to live uh, faithfully and at the end of that letter. Peter writes cryptically, she who is in Babylon greets you. Right. Well, I mean, the, the tradition is that Peter is writing from Rome. That's what's being referred to. At this time, Babylon is hardly even a city anymore. It's kind of mm-hmm. walked off the page of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a cryptic way of referring to to Rome as a Babylon. So as the Jews had to figure out how to live in Babylon and still maintain their fidelity to God. So now Christians have to learn how to live in the Roman Empire uh, and maintain their fidelity to Jesus Christ. And this is, of course, what the book of Revelation is mostly about. I don't know if people know that, but that's mostly what the book of Revelation is about. It's mostly a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire Mm -hmm. that is portrayed in various ways. Um, at one point, it's portrayed as a drunken woman riding on the back of a beast. Mm. And the woman is Roma, uh, which is the patron goddess of Rome. And readers would get that. It would be like someone today depicting the Statue of Liberty as a drunken prostitute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, wow. And you wonder why John the Revelator ends up in prison or, you know, in exile on right, that right. <laughs> Alcatraz. Uh, so so it is it is a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire calling Christians to live faithfully to Jesus Christ. Hmm. And I think that speaks powerfully to the situation we have for Christians living in the American context. America is America is huge, and it, it's it's four things. It's so big. It's not just one thing. It's it's a nation. It's a culture. It's a empire. It's a religion. Hmm. Um, as a nation and culture, I mean, you know, obviously it's a, it's a political nation, right, with its fifty states and all of that. Uh, and it's a culture because you know, back when I used to travel the world, I could find American culture everywhere I went. Right, it's a, right. It's, you know, it's exported its culture around the world. As a nation and as a culture, the United States is a mixed bag, but there's much that is admirable. 
Hmm. There's much that is inspirational. Right. And I want to be very clear about that. Hmm. Uh, as an empire, that becomes problematic because it is a challenge to the sovereignty of God. And as a religion, uh, well, of course, Christians are going to have to ultimately confess that's idolatrous. Right. right. Um, I, I, I don't know what our listeners are thinking when I say America is a religion, but it is hmm. complete with founding myths and founding fathers and holy days and sacred ground and mm. iconic images and liturgy and liturgical gestures. It carries a powerful religious component. But the big problem is that uh, I'm a pastor. You guys are pastors. Mm -hmm. I think the greatest challenge facing American pastors today is that we are tasked with trying to make disciples of people who have already been thoroughly discipled into mm. a rival religion. Mm. But the rival religion borrows so extensively from the vernacular of the Christian faith that people don't understand that we are talking about two rival religions. One, historic Orthodox Christianity, and another, which is an Americanized version of it, mm. uh, which is a deep distortion of mm. the purposes of God. So, for example, you know, Abraham Lincoln said and nearly every, every other president has said it since that America is the is the last best hope of Earth. Hmm. No, it's not. Not right. if you're a Christian. Right. Right. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is not. He's the last, best and only hope for the salvation hmm. of the world. That is a solidly orthodox statement. Hmm. Uh, so that's an example of a religious uh, aspect Hmm. of American devotion. So if patriotism means pride of place and devotion to civic responsibility, I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. But if patriotism becomes much more than that, where it's my country, right or wrong, no matter what, uh, that's when it's dangerous. That's when, when you see on a church lawn, when you see a church that likes to fly flags, uh, and they've got two flags but one flagpole, and they want to have a Christian flag and an American flag what gets top billing? Always the American flag. Right, right. That's a moment of unintended truth telling that their allegiance to Jesus Christ is, in fact, penultimate. That what comes first is allegiance to nation. And that's a problem. Man, that'll preach. I, I want to shift gears just for the last minute or two that we have left because, you know, I mentioned the books that you've written and the sermons that you often, I think, a lot of people are really challenged by. But you also are a pretty prolific blogger, and I've used a number of your blogs over the years. I probably owe you money or something. But uh, <laughs> a, a couple of weeks ago— I've never ago, made a dime on blogging. I think some people do. I don't know. I, I haven't figured that out yet. Oh, good. I feel better about it then. But we, we <laughs> I did a, a sermon on uh, atonement theories, and we were really intentional about making sure people know th these are theories. And we were right. you know, talking about— substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement theory and how, you know, people kind of get caught up in that. And that really comes to us via Calvin, via Anselm. And I referenced a quote of yours. And I want you to spend just the last minute or so that we have left, because I got more emails about this comment than I have anything else I've said in a while. You said the crucifixion is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The crucifixion is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. Could you just take a, just a minute yes, or two? Because there is, there is no rupture in the Trinity. Mm -hmm. uh, at the cross, Jesus Christ is not saving us from God. Rather, Jesus Christ is revealing God as Savior. Mm -hmm. um, yes, it was always inevitable that Christ was going to go to the cross, but not because God required the death of Jesus in order to forgive. Rather, it is just the way the world is arranged mm -hmm. that 
when a completely innocent one comes into the world, his fate is going to be what the fate of Jesus Christ was. Um, But it's not something the Father required to satisfy his wrath. When When the Son prays upon the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What is he doing? He's revealing the Father. This is throughout, especially John's gospel. Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father say. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Mm. So Jesus is not acting as an agent of change upon the Father. That's terrible theology. Mm. Uh, The Father is immutable. The Father doesn't change. The Son is not changing the mind of God on the cross the Son is revealing the heart of God, the heart of the Father. So you could think of it like this. When the Son prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, the Father might, we might imagine the Father in reply saying, of course, Son, that's who we are. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. If you want more on how I deal with atonement theories, that's in the book, Sinners in the Hands of Loving God. There's two chapters on it. Well, that is, I think, just about the perfect way to wrap this up. If you're just joining us, that has been Pastor Brian Zahn, founding and lead pastor of Word of Life Church, and also the author of numerous books. He said eight or nine, I think, which means nine is on its way. But Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God and Postcards from Babylon, the Church in American Exile. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, it was fun to be with you all. Just You just sat back and let me rant and do my thing. But, <laughs> I but love it, it. It was not, that was nice of you. Let's, yeah. let's do it again sometime. <laughs> yeah. love that. All right. <laughs> You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're talking about QAnon, stress, and five startling reasons people are leaving your church. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, joined as always by Brian Fromm. If you're just joining us, by the way, go back and listen to the podcast. We had Brian Zondon for three segments in the first hour, and he was unsurprisingly brilliant i can't encourage you enough to go back and uh, listen to that on the podcast speaking of podcasts whoo my own segue you can subscribe rate and review not only you can we are borderline beseeching you to that helps us out a whole ton <laughs> especially with everyone starting podcasts right now just giving it a five star and leaving a comment and subscribing helps it kind of bump up in the algorithm so if you want to take it a step further you can even share that with a friend and we're super grateful for that and uh, you can find us on facebook the common good radio show 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is, you get podcasts. I just said that. So uh, if you would like to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, you can do that as well, at Common Good Talk. And uh, that's sort of a different presence over there. I don't know that we've actually talked, Brian, about QAnon. Have we actually taken a deep dive into this yet? No, no, okay. not at all. Well, here's, here's the headline to whet your appetites. Simply reads, QAnon, the alternative religion that's coming to your church. This is out of religionnews.com. And I'm going to ask the right Reverend Brian Fromm to get us into this topic. Yeah, I think this is so timely. It's an important topic. Let me just read the beginning from Caitlin Beatty. She writes, it's a rough time to be a pastor. An election year, national race, racial unrest and a global pandemic each challenge the usual methods of ministry. Taken together, many church leaders uh, are facing the traditional post-vacation in-gathering season with a serious case of burnout. 
But there's another challenge that pastors I spoke with say is on the rise in their flocks. It is taking on the power of a new religion that's dividing churches and hurting Christian witness. Hmm. Uh, Mark Fugit, a senior pastor in Missouri, recently sat down to count the conspiracy theories that people in his church are sharing on Facebook. The list was long. It included claims that 5G radio waves are used for mind control, that George Floyd's murder is a hoax, that Bill Gates is related to the devil, that masks can kill you, that the germ theory isn't real, and that there might be something to Pizzagate after all. He said, you just don't see it once. If there's ever anything posted, you'll see it five to ten times. It's Hmm. escalating for sure. So the article goes on to say conspiracy theories are nothing new in the U.S. But since 2017, a sort of uh, ur conspiracy theory called QAnon uh, has coalesced in online forums and created millions of believers. To look at QAnon is to see not just a conspiracy theory, but the birth of a religion, Adrian LaFrance wrote in The Atlantic. Named after Q, who posted anonymously on the online bulletin board 4chan, QAnon alleges that President Donald Trump and military officials are working to expose a deep state pedophile ring with links to Hollywood, the media and the Democratic Party. Since it's first mentioned some three years ago, the theory has drawn adherents looking for a clear way to explain recent disorienting global events. Looking at for some stats here, it says one scholar found that 71 percent increase in QAnon content on Twitter and a 651 percent increase on Facebook since March. So we're going to stop there. It goes on to talk about the things like pandemic uh, and other things that have been going around. But, man, I, you and I have touched on this from different an- angles, but the the those numbers, the increase in conspiracy theories that are bouncing around, not just online, but within our churches. I've seen it. I don't know about you. I've seen it on my uh, Facebook pages and all sorts of other things uh, that I think this article here kind of liking it to the way a religion works. I'm not sure is that far off course. And not just pastors, but I think all of us have to be really, really concerned about this. I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, wrong at all to say he references this pastor, John Thorngate, as one of the few pastors who would go on the record. Uh, and he, he attributes the phenomenon in part to what they call, quote, the death of expertise, a distrust of authority figures that leads some Americans to undervalue long established measures of competency and wisdom. Among some church members, he said the attitude is, quote, I'm going to use church for the things I like, ignore for the things I don't, and find my own truth. The part for us is concerning that nothing feels authoritative right now, which mm-hmm. is interesting. That has interesting, I think, implications both for the Christ follower and for the American. Because I imagine, too, like when we were in youth group, there probably was some level of respect the authority, your authority, your parents or the government. But there probably also was another aspect where, at least for me in high school, I, I, I began to really be pretty fascinated with Jesus, maybe not so much the church just yet, but like I was like, oh, man, he seems to sort of usurp authority at times or or challenge authority or speak truth to power. So I could see some people who are maybe the most likely to kind of buy into some of this feel almost like these religious vigilantes, like, yeah, 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 we're going to, we're sticking it to the establishment. That's why we need to keep sharing these videos and make sure that we're emphatic about the actual, the real truth that we know to be true. When you put that kind of engine and fire behind a position or an ideology, it would make sense to me that it would be up 651% on Facebook. Yeah. And to be honest with you, well, I was having a conversation with somebody 
uh, of an older of the older generation, the generation above me uh, recently. Uh, and it was scary because this person said, uh, those of us in our generation, we just don't feel like you all understand. Like they were saying that they could see what's going on in the world that the rest of us couldn't. This isn't just generational. But I do think there's a generational aspect to it. Hmm. And this article goes on to uh, quote another pastor in Texas. He said, young people are exiting the church because they see their parents and mentors and pastors and Sunday school teachers spreading things that even at a young age they can see through. He said conspiracy theories are, quote, extremely widespread and getting worse among his online church networks. And so this is an important thing, not just for the sake of truth, and uh, but also because they tend to, the younger generation, this isn't, again, painting with a broad brush, but the younger generation is going, I can't believe you're believing this. Hmm. And that's causing them to reject the other things their parents, their mentors, their whoever other pastors are saying. It's why we had Ed Stetzer on, right? Friend of the show a couple of months ago. And we talked about conspiracy theories at one of his articles about the danger of them. And this is one of the many reasons that they're dangerous. Yeah, no kidding. I, I know that we only have a couple of minutes left, but how how this article sort of ends uh, drawing this connection between QAnon and syncretism, which I, I think is a, a super fascinating take. Syncretism, they define as the practice of blending traditional Christian beliefs with other spiritual systems. Mm. Uh, it, I don't think it's just specific to Christianity, but this, this is how the article ends. The earliest Christians contended with syncretism in the forms of Gnosticism, which blended elements of Greek philosophy and Zerostrianism with Christianity, em- emphasizing the good, evil, spirit, flesh, divide, as well as secret divine knowledge. Early church fathers, such as uh, Irenaeus and Tertullian, battled Gnostic ideas, rejecting them as heresy. At a time when church leaders are having to host digital church and trying to meet members' needs virtually, the idea of adding fighting heresy to their to-do list might sound exhausting, but a core calling of church leaders is to speak the truth in love. It's not loving to allow impressionable people to be taken in by falsehood, nor is it loving to allow them to spread falsehood and slander others. Conspiracy theories thrive on a sort of cynicism that says we see a different reality that no one else sees. Paul says to take every thought captive addressing conspiracy theories is a part of that work. What do you think of that final statement there, Brian? I think she's right. And I totally, when she said I, that a lot of pastors just don't have the energy or the desire to fight these types of things, I'm raising my hand. Count me yeah. in on that one. Because yeah. I'm not one of these guys who's like, I want to fight this head on. I'm like, seriously, you posted that. Like, what do I need to do? And, and it's I find it draining. But she's right. Uh, this is growing in our culture. I believe somebody just won a primary down South who is like a blatant, like I believe in QAnon, like just the other day. And, and so this is a growing thing. That's only going to get a little crazier as this election gets forward. And so pastors, but not just pastors, church leaders, Christians as a whole, uh, I think do need to enter into this and tackle this. Well, not to pat ourselves on the back, Brian, but this feels like the day of decent segues and teasers because you were just talking about feeling a little stressed. And coming up next, here's the headline, warning signs and practical help for stress overload. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, and I'm not confident what day it is today. What's the day? Today is, I had to think about that for a second. It's Tuesday. <laughs> it is Tuesday, otherwise known as Hump Day Eve. Oh, wow. Or uh, HDE. Is, is Tuesday the most forgettable day of the week? 
Uh, it is. It is the day that I have the most meetings, but it is also it tends to be pretty forgettable, right? It's, like the, it's the vanilla yogurt of days of the week, isn't it? I think it is, that is a fair statement. It is the Rocky Four of days of the no, week. No, 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 whoa, whoa, back up! <laughs> I knew that would do it. It is the if you're Brian Fromm, it's the Lord of the Rings. Yes, avocado, uh, <laughs> soft and moist chocolate chip cookie day of the week. Although we, you and I have not here talked about your declaration over the week on Twitter over the weekend about uh, being <laughs> pro boneless uh, chicken wings. I, I was like, oh, show's over. Can't do it anymore. <laughs> well, okay. If I could for a quick moment before we get into stress, Brian, I said yes. uh, unpopular opinion. Boneless wings are delightful. And the Internet lost its mind. And it's funny because people are like, they're not wings. They're chicken nuggets for adults. I'm like, I'm not debating that they're named accurately. I'm just saying they're, they're delightful. Good. I'm not saying I dislike regular wings. I still probably even prefer regular wings. I'm just tired of living in secrecy and pretending like I don't actually also love boneless wings because they are a joy. It's and the a truth nice, of the matter it's, is it's a shining ray of joy. If you put boneless wings in front of me right now or chicken tenders or chicken nuggets, I'm eating all of them. So we're good. We're good. Because you're a human, Brian. Of course, you would. no judgment on this side of the screen whatsoever. Uh, all right. I want to talk about stress a little bit. And this is, again, just to say it again out loud. We've gotten a couple of messages from people every once in a while. Brian and I are talking about things that aren't straight from Scripture or have nothing to do with ministry or the church, but they have to do with people. And we just hope that the stuff that we talk about is helpful or engaging, even if you completely disagree. One of the things that I've seen a lot of people writing about is just stress and burnout. And I thought this article was interesting. The headline reads, Warning Signs and Practical Help for Stress Overload. It begins by saying, ask someone how they're doing. The common response is, I'm good, thanks. Here's the more candid version I'm hearing these days. Quote, I think I'm pretty good, but I'm not really sure. Honestly, I don't know. And that's an honest answer. It's an answer of a leader who may be on overload. It could be someone in your family or a leader you are developing or you. It will soon be half a year since the coronavirus invaded our lives. Overall, I think most are doing well under the circumstances, but cracks are beginning to appear as people are hitting their limits. We need to learn how to handle a new level of sustainability in terms of unanswered questions, unresolved problems, and unknown future. Sustained, unanswered, unresolved, and unknown. That's the new overload. It's been building up on all of us for over five months. Stress, fear, worry, anxiety, anger, frustration, depression. Some leaders are reaching breakpoints. Others are holding up pretty well, uh, everything considered. But no one completely eludes the effects of this season. One person said it this way, describing a family member. He's really mad, but he doesn't know who to be mad at. That, <laughs> that sums it up pretty well. It's a moving target. That changes weekly health, finances, emotions, career, future, and now it's impacting relationships. Why is it that some people are dealing with all of this craziness better than others? Some entered the season with more emotional reserves in their soul. Others uh, live and lead in healthier environments. Others still have determined to find the good rather than get stuck in the negative. Truth is, we're all different, but there are several things in common. Let's start with some of the warning signs. We're going to get into four warning signs of overload. And I found these to actually be really helpful. So I'd love for you to kind of get us into these. And we're not going to just stop at warning signs. We'll get to some uh, some suggestions a little later in the segment. Yep. Four warning signs of overload. The first one he writes is escapism. Entertainment, imagination, just unplugging for a few hours is good, but not if it's a consistent escape 
from reality. And so I think we get that, like it's a warning sign that we're not doing well if we're constantly trying to escape and just kind of shut our brains off. Yeah. Number two is uh, antagonism and antagonistic disposition often starts from prolonged frustration, moves to anger and eventually resentment. When anger finds its way to the surface, it can make itself known in very destructive ways. If you find yourself moving from conversations to debates, be careful. Debates by nature require a winner and a loser. Debates require someone to be right, someone to be wrong. In contrast, a conversation gives space to disagree and learn. And then it goes on to talk about social media is a pretty common arena for battle that usually results in unnecessary division. So that number two is antagonism. And number three is detachment. Escapism pretends the current issues are not real. Detachment knows the problems are real, but withdraws to self-protect. Detachment mm. chooses isolation to cope with overload and block the angst that accompanies unrelenting pressure and problems. So we just we know the problems are there, but we detach so that we don't have to deal with them. Yeah. And this fourth one's really stupid. It's called pessimism. Uh, <laughs> the pessimist sees the present and future as a dark cloud and has difficulty seeing a silver lining. Pessimism is often accompanied by distrust cynicism and a negative outlook it's almost impossible to lead effectively with a pessimistic pessimistic outlook because the nature of vision approaches the future in a positive manner that doesn't mean the road is an easy one in fact it can be extremely challenging but it is still full of hope i i was going to ask you which of those you most resonate with if we have time we'll get there but i want to make sure that we get to the next list in this article five practical everyday ways to handle pent-up stress and pressure overload so why don't you kick us off with number one yeah this becomes really not just practical but helpful here number one yeah. honest conversation an honest conversation does three really healthy things it gets your stress your pressure and negative emotion from mm -hmm. locked up inside moved outside it helps you clarify and define the scope and depth of your stress and you often discover you're not alone that others are feeling the same way conversation with a trusted friend or mentor is great but if you need a professional counselor, don't hesitate to make an appointment. Honest conversation. Number two, get outside and keep moving. I cannot recommend this one enough, by the way. Sunshine and fresh air have a tremendously positive effect on your emotions and overall disposition. Getting outside, taking a simple walk around the parking lot or up and down your street is a great stress reliever. Exercise, of course, adds even more value to your mental health. Yeah, and if you need any more reason to get outside, right now they're saying that, ex that uh, the sunlight helps with the coronavirus. So yes, yet another reason true. to that's get true. outside. Number three, intentionally cultivate the fruit of the spirit in your life. We all know the list in Galatians 5. It says each of these resides within you, but it's up to you how strong their presence is in your life. Intentional cultivation through prayer and practice increases their presence and strength. Mm. Number four, enjoy the simple things in life. I really appreciate the value of the simple things, but I'm not always good at it. I would raise my hand and say, same here. Uh, I typically move too fast and love to take on even more and greater challenges. I'll raise my hand for that one as well. The simple things in life require us to slow down, to cease striving, to find that content place uh, where you are not measuring success, but instead enjoying the moment. You know you're there when you quietly smile and sense a deep inner peace. I have a new simple thing I love. My granddaughter is five months old and I just started eating solid foods. I fed her for the first time and I was utterly lost in the moment. We all have simple things that make us smile. And don't miss them. Just be sure to actually enjoy them. And number five, and you're probably, if you've listened to this show at all, you probably know where number five is going. Mm -hmm. Number five is unplug and get some quiet. I'm not referring to your quiet time with God, although that's always a good thing to do. In this case, I'm just talking about good old-fashioned quiet. Quiet is rare these days. 
I'm not big on putting my own iPhone in a drawer for a week, but I do think that laying it down in another room for a couple hours or so is healthy. Turn your devices off, even if just for a couple hours, two to three times a week. It really makes a difference. And then he closes by saying, I hope this post is helpful to you, uh, my friend. And so this is really helpful. A lot of us he uh, feeling this overload. He defines how to know if you're overloaded and then some great, very practical steps that you can take. I think this is a wonderful thing for any of you out there feeling stressed and overloaded. OK, real quick moment of truth. Uh, which from the first list do you most uh, connect with four warning signs of overload? Does one of them really jump out at you? Uh, escapism. Just kind of like I'm going to get on my phone. I'm going to watch TV. And again, those things aren't bad, but just doing them in excess just to kind of shut everything out. Mine's escapism. What about you? Uh, All of them, maybe. (laughs) I was feeling convicted reading all of them. I was like, oh, boy. I mean, since March, if the if the uh, if the sample size is since March, all of them, I've I've probably experienced each of those in varying degrees in varying ways. Super, super grateful for a kind and loving and gracious family that has uh, helped us walk through some of those things. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to know what you guys think. This is on our Facebook page. What would you add to the list? What would you take away? What did you find the most helpful, least helpful? That's all over on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next from Carrie Newhoff, uh, five rather startling reasons people leave your church. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Well, hi there, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Carrie Newhoff, who's a pastor, an author, best-selling, I think, and a <laughs> podcaster. He actually puts out more blog content than most anyone that I know. Yeah. And gosh darn it, if they're not all pretty provocative. I don't agree with everything he writes, just like I'm sure not everyone agrees with everything we say on the show. But he's got some really, I think, some pretty good insight. I mean, you know, for a Canadian. So he's got... Uh, headline here that says uh, five rather startling reasons people leave your church. If you're new to the show, Brian and I are both pastors first. We pastor churches here in the Chicagoland suburbs. And so we can't help at times to think through the lens of a pastor, of someone who's you know leading a local congregation. And uh, he writes stuff from that perspective a lot that I find really helpful. So here's five rather startling reasons people leave your church. Why don't you take us away, Brian Fromm? Yeah, he says, no matter how long you've been in leadership, it still hurts when people leave your church. It's somewhat easy to understand people leaving when things are going poorly. Uh, But what most leaders aren't prepared for is the reality that people will leave when things are going well, even when they're going really well. In fact, some people leave because things are going well or because you're getting healthier. As surprising as this sounds, every time you make progress as a church, you'll lose people. This comes as a shock to most leaders, and it can be very disheartening, especially if you don't realize some loss, even in great seasons, is normal. So why do people leave when things are making prog- when you're making progress at your church? Simple. The people at your church today are there because they like it the way it is. Change that, even for the better, and some will leave. It will shock you. It will disappoint you. It will leave you scratching your head, and it's unavoidable. But you don't need to keep moving or else – but you need to keep moving, I'm sorry, or else you'll be paralyzed by focusing on – Uh, who you want to keep, not who you want to reach. So why do people leave when things are going well? And here are his five reasons. I find this fascinating uh, that, but if you've been a pastor for any amount of time, right, you learn that people leave at all sorts of different seasons for all sorts of different reasons. Yeah. Uh, And it's always difficult. Um, But that's one of the weird things about right now, isn't it? Like you don't know if people have left your church (laughs) and uh, there's a little bit of that going on right now, but I find this fascinating, but it's an interesting article. Here's five rather startling reasons people leave when things are going well. 
Uh, I'd love to know, Brian, how do you how do you handle or how do you deal? What what grade would you give yourself on a one to ten when, when people leave your church? Uh, a four, probably. Really? I'm not I'm not good with it. It's weird, man. We've talked about being a people pleaser. I I uh I take and also when you start a church, you've got a little bit of a weird investment in it. And so uh, I take it way too personally when people stay and come to our church, and I mm. take it way too personally when people leave our church. And so oh, I often believe they've started attending our church because of me, and then I think they've left our church also because of me. Usually neither are true. Yeah, uh, I always play a part in it, but no, I don't do well at all. How about yourself? I guess it really it depends on the season. And if yeah. I'm being really honest, it probably depends on the person, too. I, I, I have had people actually sit me down and tell me why they were leaving, which – was incredibly painful, but to some degree, I kind of appreciate it. Actually, it's like, hey, it was like a, it's like a congregant exit interview. Like, hey, we're leaving. We just wanted you to know why. We still like you. And I was like, oh, all right. It does. Re- it, I mean, this will sound self-seeking because you and I are both pastors, but it it does. It stings. It can it can really hurt, and it is hard. I think to not take it personally, at least to some yes. degree, which. That might be new information to people if they're if they're not pastors. They may think that we don't notice or that it doesn't actually affect us. It. It definitely does. But I think this perspective here in this blog is interesting because it's not five reasons people leave when the ship is going down or when there's chaos or organizational cacophony. He's like, here's reasons people leave when you're least expecting it, when it's going well. So number one, you cast too big a vision. And he goes on, he says, what? Casting a big, vi- a big vision can cause people to leave? Absolutely. A big vision is inspiring. It's also threatening. Vision threatens people because inherently vision challenges the status quo. It calls out the best in people. It asks people to think bigger, to think beyond themselves, to push past the status quo and to sacrifice. And not everybody's up for that. As a leader, it's critical to sift through your motivation every time you cast vision. If the vision is really about you, your ego, or your insecurities, healthy people will resist it. Wise, godly people can help you sort through your motives and see them accurately. But if you can have a beautifully motivated, compelling vision and still have people walk out the door, as exciting as the future is, some people prefer the present. Others live in the past. You can't build the future church on people who live in the past. Hmm. Number two, uh, you grew. Growth can be an awesome thing. Healthy growth means you're reaching new people, baptizing people, and seeing hope beat in the hearts of people who never knew hope. But growth is threatening. You'll see a few patterns emerge. First, people who love being a big fish in a small pond will immediately hmm. get uncomfortable. They'll want more say, more power, more control. Others won't be comfortable with the crowds or the parking issues or having to wait in lines. And you'll probably hear vague comments like it's just not the same anymore or we simply like it better when it was smaller. So what do you do with that? Well, first, empathize. Uh, Second, ask them to invite their friends and get in on what's going on. What you'll likely discover is that some do, but most or at least many don't. And for them, it might all all boil down to this. The church isn't really about accomplishing a a mission. It's about uh, meeting their needs. I actually had somebody when we were growing early on in the, the history of our church, I had a lady so sweet came up to me and said, I really fear that we're going to get bigger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, wow. And she meant it uh, like it was nothing bad about it. And right. it was so sweet. And I was like, okay. And we talked through it, but I get that one. Yeah. And, the, and these are honestly fair concerns. I remember, you know, as, when I was at Poplar Creek and we were talking about being a church in the city for the city. And I remember somebody in a meeting saying, yeah, but, how much bigger do we really want to get? And mm. I said, honestly, it's not about bigger, but are there, are there still lost people in this city? And she's like, yeah. I was like, other people that still need Jesus and don't know him? She's like, yeah. I was like, well, then we're not done yet. Like, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's not about attendance here, but it is about 
you know, partially about reaching people. But which brings me to number three, actually. Number three, you're reaching different people. As a church realizes its mission, it means that you'll reach your community, which when fully realized means you'll have a cross-section of your entire community, rich and poor, professional and blue-collar, Republicans and Democrats, black and white, Latino and Asian. It means you'll have people in your church who are sober and others who are working on it and others still whose addictions are far from under control which is exactly what the church should be. The New Testament church was all those things. If you're not convinced it was, please reread 1 Corinthians. This can be really threatening for people who think church is for the righteous and for people who have all their issues worked out, which, of course, is none of us. Tim Keller gets right to the heart of the problem with modern Christianity in recounting this conversation he had with a woman about her self-righteous faith. This is a quote from Keller. He says, I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace. She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would like uh, I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But it's really but if it's really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. Whew, mm. That's good. If everyone in your church looks like you, acts like you, votes like you, believes like you and thinks like you, you're probably not the church. Man. He's going for it this one. All right, we got yeah. – uh, why don't you just hit the last two real quick? Yep, number four, you got healthier. He says, when I look back over two decades of leadership, I realized that so many of my journey, uh, so much of my journey has been toward greater and greater emotional and spiritual health. And so actually when you get healthier, uh, it drives some people away, mm. uh, more unhealthy people. And number five, you finally moved into that new facility. So many people think a move into a building is a positive step for a church that has momentum. That's almost universally true. But even when things are going well, you will lose people. Some people will love the portable days even better. Some won't like the new location. Others may not like the design. So for some, they're just not going to want to go in. So that's a helpful list of five. And always a reminder that just because people leave doesn't mean things are off the tracks. Uh, it's reason to ask questions, but it doesn't mean, and I think what Ian pointed out before, if you're a pastor is good, as painful as it can be, go uh, search out some of those people if they do leave and just have a conversation with them. I think it's healthy. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Well, coming up next to wrap up the show, a word from Father Richard Rohr. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good for the last time today. But fret not, we'll be back again tomorrow and every day. For eternity, you can join for us Monday through Friday <laughs> from 4 to 6 p.m. I was about to ask you uh, big plans for the weekend and then remembered it's a Tuesday. So it's Tuesday. <laughs> it's, a weird, it's a weird question to ask. That's the kind of Tuesday I'm having, by the way, Brian. It is uh, It is just one of those days. I, I know that you're probably upstairs looking out a nice window. Is that is that I accurate? Am. Oh, yeah. Staring out <laughs> over outside. It's beautiful. I do like I do, you know, there's certain things we've lost because of the pandemic and stuff. You know, even with the show, you and I don't do it together uh, in this scenario. But this the seat looking out over the window, out the window over the sunny uh, kind of the lawns. I love it. It's really peaceful up here. <laughs> now I just feel like you're rubbing it in, which I'm I'm fine with. I oh, I would got the tree house. Come on, you've got the treehouse. That's true. I gotta make I gotta make it back out there. We have some squirrels in the backyard that have gotten real cocky, and they are <laughs> they they are like approaching us, and they are all over the treehouse. And you know, I, I in my mind, squirrels are always really easy to scare. You just open the door, you just look at them. Now they're yep. like approaching me, like. Like, what you like they're sizing me up or something. And I'm like, I don't I don't want to have a showdown with a squirrel. I don't. They called my bluff, man. So they, that's probably why I haven't been in the treehouse in a while, to be honest. 
Anywho, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Center for Action and Contemplation. That is uh, in part Father Richard Rohr, Franciscan priest that I've followed and read. And I know that he's a pretty controversial issue, pretty controversial issue. He's a controversial person for a number of people in a number of issues. But I wanted to just simply read this devotion. They, uh, they share a number of devotions and it kind of gets sent right to my inbox every day. And I thought, All right, I'm just going to read this one. It's called The Mirror Image. And this was back from August 6th. And, uh, and then kind of get some of your reactions. Yeah. So I first quote to Meister Eckhart, uh, who says, An image is not of itself, nor is it for itself. It rather springs from the thing whose reflection it is and belongs to it with all its being. It owes nothing to a thing other than what, who, uh, that whose image it is. Nothing else is at its origin. An image takes its being immediately from that of which it is the image and has one sole being with it, and it is that same being. Meister Eckhart says that the generosity of the infinite is infinite and that God gives God's self away as the reality of all things. And he says that our sorrow is that we do not know that we are the generosity of God. This is a paraphrase of Eckhart. Imagine that you're standing before a full-length mirror and uh, and imagine the image of you is conscious, that is, it can think. And this image of you has been through a lot of therapy. It's taken a lot of courses on being an insightful image. And it has come to a point in which it informs you that it doesn't need you. You say to the image of you, well, you know, this is going to be rough, really, since you're an image of me. No, the image says after a pause, I've worked on this. I've come to this mm-hmm. point. And so to gently help the image out, you step halfway off the side of the mirror and Half the image disappears. The image has a panic attack and goes back into therapy and says to the therapist, I'm not real. I'm not real. I was working on my affirmations. I bolstered up my confidence, but I don't know where I went. I buckled. Now the image was real, but the image wasn't real in the way that it thought it was real. It was real, but not real without you. It was real as an image of you. See, Eckhart says the image owes no allegiances to anything except that of which it is the image. There is nothing that has the authority to say what it is, except that of which it is the image. And so it is with us, Eckhart says, that we are the image of God. Without God, we are nothing, absolutely nothing. In being the image of God, we owe no allegiances to anything but the infinite love in whose image we are made. And the idolatry of diversions of the heart, where we wander off into cul-de-sacs with the imagined authority of anything less or other than infinite love, to name who we are. This is the problem. I'd love to know Brian from now after hearing that first blush, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, that there are people that are much better writers than I am. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. Uh, but this concept of the image of God, it's a powerful uh, imagery that they, that he uses here, right? It's a powerful picture. It's a biblical picture. And this idea, it, see, it's at the same time, the way he paints it, it's both, uh, freeing and and like empowering, right? I'm the hmm. image of God. Like that is that's for some people that's like too much of a statement, right there, right? Like no, I can't be. But hmm. so at the one point it's really empowering. At the other part, it's really humbling, right? That line, without God, we are nothing, absolutely nothing. Some of us might be going, come on, like I've got intrinsic value in and of myself, and he's saying no. Our value is coming from our creator and in whose image we are. I think this is really powerful. And uh, it's one of those things that, what you know, it's up on our Facebook page that I would encourage people to read over and over again, because there were times you read it and I was like, wait, what did he just say? 
And then as you read back over it, this concept of what does it mean that we're the image of God created in his image? I think this has so many repercussions, right? Self-esteem, how we see ourselves, but also, uh, you know, that which who we are following and who has our allegiance as this as this uh, devotion says. I think this is powerful. Well, it's something that you and I, I think we even said this in our introductory video that you and I were making fun of a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> we didn't even know what the show was going to be or what we we're going to talk about. Maybe maybe I'm not remembering this correctly, but I do feel like in the last year and a half that we've done this show, Imago Day, image of God has come up a lot, sometimes in response to issues of race and racism, other times when it comes to conversations surrounding identity and worth. I'd love to know, why do you think, just anecdotally, you and I keep coming back to this topic so much? Oh, for me, it's a couple different reasons. One of them is pastoral. Like, I, yeah. you know, people want to go, why, what makes me worth? What makes me different? What makes me this? And, and so I want my people to believe this. Mm. Uh, but really what it comes down to is I think you and I both, just as people, are searching for our own uh, what gives me significance? What gives me what makes me who I am? These types of, uh, you know, deep questions. And so uh, I I will struggle with, you know, well, making my identity or my worth in what I do or what can I accomplish? And so as much as I want my people in my church to know this, I that much more need to know it myself. I think that's why I constantly come back to it. I'm guessing you probably feel the same way. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's something that is strangely evergreen because mm-hmm. Paul and Jesus and Peter, they, they seem to speak a lot to identity, not just simply, Hey, you need to live this way, you know, st- cut it out, stop doing those things, start doing these things. There seems to be this sort of like pervasive sense throughout the new Testament that when you know who you are, you'll know how to live, right? Like our, our activity flows from our identity not the other way around and they can sometimes mm-hmm. you know they have a bit of a bit of a dance i'm sure that sometimes our activity maybe helps inform our identity more fully or more robustly but i, I don't know it, it seems like there's not been a season of my adult life where i haven't felt like gosh i need to remember to be root what does it mean to be in christ right, right? this idea and you right. and i often reference you know the vine and the branches it's i mean it shows up more than 200 times in the New Testament, this idea of in Christ or with Christ over and over and over again, as if to say who God says you are is the most important thing about you. And we often will forget that. And we believe that it's, you know, my status at my job or the size of my house. And and for me, I, I have no idea really why I wanted to end the show with that specifically. Mm-hmm. But I just had this sense, though, that I think in the midst of all this chaos and people trying to navigate a really, really bizarre season that maybe just maybe – the thing we need to do first and foremost is to simply rest in who we are and who God says yes. that we are. And I think sometimes that can feel like almost like a waste of time to our sort of utilitarian, very action oriented culture. But sometimes and I found this to be true, simply resting and remembering who God says I am and who he says he is, is maybe, maybe just the best thing that we can do. I hope that that was encouraging or challenging to you in some way. Like Brian said, that's up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And that concludes our show for today. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.